Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. If you just bow your heads with me once more in prayer. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, the sum and the scope of your word. Uh, even as uh, Peter talked about a couple weeks ago when we were in it, that no prophecy of scripture um, is given by men, but men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so we have your words, um, not our words, not words that we'd probably choose to write if we were in charge of writing them, but they are words for our good, uh, words that remind us of your love for us, but also words that remind us of our problem in life. So we pray that it accomplishes everything you've purposed for today. We pray that you bless our time together as the fellowship of God's church uh, for your glory and for our good. We pray in your name, amen. So this week, uh, I was wrestling with writing the sermon, and uh, on Thursday, uh, I took a break, and I went to my usual coffee shop, hoping that a little coffee would kind of uh, gain, give me some traction to continue to write. Um, we all have functional idols. Coffee's one of mine, and I'm aware of it, and I'm asking for grace. Uh, but while I was there, I mentioned to the uh, barista that uh, I was hoping this coffee would kind of help me with my writer's block. And as soon as I said that, I panicked inside, because I knew the next question he could ask is, what are you writing about? And I go to this coffee shop with consistency for a couple reasons. One, because they have really good coffee. And two, because as an introvert, I want to invest long-term in relationships uh, because I'm not good at making them in the short moment. And so I've been going back continually, and I've wanted to begin to share more with these people about the gospel. And so my hope would be that any other day, if they asked me this, we're going through First and Second Peter that I would talk about the wonderful mystery of God calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light, about the divine nature of the church, we as holy stones being built up together into the image of Jesus, the wonderful love with which he loved us, but the theme that dominates our text today is the 100% bona fide certainty of God's judgment, and that topic doesn't really lend itself to passing conversations. Maybe you've experienced that in different ways in different times, and why is that? Well, I think it's because even though our culture is progressively post-Christian, meaning as each new class of freshmen go into high school or to uh, the University of Montana, they know less about the culture of Christianity. They know less about the gospel, less about the language. Our our, uh, culture is progressed beyond this kind of shared sort of knowledge on what Christianity is. And yet... There are still those stereotypes and tropes about fire and brimstone preachers. Maybe their only context for judgment that they ever hear is either parodies on TV shows or walking downtown and seeing preachers with shouts and signs. Maybe they had an experience growing up with them or with a family member feeling judged by the church and what was being used was this doctrine of God's judgment. And if you're not a Christian and you're visiting in here today or you're watching online, you probably have those same emotions welling up in your gut right now, wondering what it is you've walked into. But I hope what you'll see today is actually two things in our text. That first, that hearing the doctrine of judgment 
is actually good news for you. Because it's in hearing about where things went wrong that we can begin to see where Jesus has come to make it right. It's in hearing about the punishment that stands against you, you hear the good news of the gospel, that there is an opportunity we'll see today to escape it. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit, but the second thing I want us to know is that non-believers are not, or at least self-confessing non-believers, people who are not Christian, are not the primary audience of Peter's text today. In fact, Peter assumes that people who don't believe in the gospel, who don't believe in God, who don't believe the Bible, would wrestle with the doctrine of God's judgment and find it to be strange and weird and out of place but because it's natural. But Peter's point today is that it is entirely inconsistent for Christians to wrestle with this judgment. So who, who he's writing to is actually not non-believers who deny God's judgment, but people who claim to be Christian who deny God's judgment. For him, it's, a, it's an oddity to believe God's word in every other sphere, but to deny it here. In fact, one of the biggest themes Peter picks up on for uh, themes of danger towards the church is the same danger there is today in the church. It's not that unbelievers are uncomfortable with the idea of God's punishment, but that believers often deny themselves the return of Jesus and the subsequent judgment which follows. And so Peter wants to remind us of this truth. Look at how he opens his text today in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring you up, or I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So this is now the second letter, and the second time in this letter where Peter says he's writing to stir up the church, stir up those who believe. And far more than just being like a gentle stirring of your morning coffee, this word carries with it the sense of alarm, of being awoke by an alarm clock, or like a good cup of coffee that you don't just stir, but actually enlivens you up to something that you were growing dull towards. And what is it that he wants the church to be reminded of, that they should wake up to? That you should believe all of God's word. He says here, you should believe what the Old Testament prophets have been saying. He says you should believe what the New Testament apostles are saying as an extension of what Jesus himself taught them. And what is the key implication of this authority of Scripture? Well, he's going to pick one today, and that is the reality of judgment. Today, Peter wants us to become comfortably uncomfortable with the doctrine of judgment. And the big picture we're going to look at today is this, is that God's judgment is a universal weight which can only be removed through the gospel. This event, this judgment is universal. You don't get an option to opt in or to opt out of it. And yet there's a way out, and it's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see this in three parts today. In looking at verses 3 and 4, we're going to see our first point, which is how easy it is to forget judgment. In this passage, we're going to see the logic of the false teachers during Peter's time, and we're going to see how easy it is for us to actually live our lives under those same assumptions. Second, we're going to see how inconsistent it is to deny judgment. That's going to be in verses 5 through 8. And in that, we're going to see that to believe in God is to believe all that God has done in history in relationship to sinners and his people. And then lastly, we're going to see how merciful it is to escape judgment. And in the final verses of this text, we're going to see that a clear understanding of judgment 
doesn't actually lead us to question God's anger, but instead it leads us to marvel at his mercy. And so we're going to see how easy it is to forget judgment, how inconsistent it is to deny judgment, and how merciful it is to escape judgment. But to get there, there's actually some context, and it's actually a theological context, which sounds like something completely disconnected from your life. But what we're going to see is there's nothing more formative and practical to your life than theology, what you think about God. And there is this word that he is talking about that we need to define. You see, in chapter one, he says, dear church, do not overlook conversion. Do not overlook the doctrine of conversion. But in chapters two and three, he's saying, dear church, do not overlook the doctrine of what Peter calls in verse 10, the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord, as if judgment didn't sound scary, ominous, and terrifying enough, the day of the Lord in scripture means all sorts of crazy things, wild things, things which for Peter's churches and for our church today are easy to write off or to be confused by or even to forget. And it's something that Peter says both the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament authors were clear on. And there are all sorts of aspects on what does the day of the Lord mean and what happens and and the details of that. But Peter's really picking up two primary themes wrapped up in this doctrine of the day of the Lord. And the first is this, that on the day of the Lord, Jesus Christ will return for a second time. When Jesus was alive, he lived on the earth, he died on a cross, he rose again, but then he ascended. He's not here. No one has ran into Jesus on the streets of Missoula because he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. But one day... Look what Jesus says in Matthew 25. One day, this Jesus is coming back. This is Jesus' own, own words. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. So Paul also talks about this, that that it's the day of the Lord when Christ will return. And here, Jesus says there's a second thing. It's not just the return of Christ, but there's also judgment to follow. Judgment which separates the sheep who are faithful and the goats who are not faithful. Judgment which leads some into salvation and into glory, into the new heavens, into the new earth, into everything we were created to enjoy. And on the other hand, it leads to judgment and damnation. Look at how these themes coexist in the Old Testament in Obadiah verses 15 through 17. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they have never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. So here we see this drinking is this theme of they are continuing to sin, and they'll get wrath. And yet we see that there is this promise of salvation. There are some who would escape this judgment. This specific event, the day of the Lord, is explicitly mentioned in 11 biblical books, or excuse me, by 11 biblical authors in 14 biblical books. You cannot escape it. And yet, he's writing to a church saying, then why do you forget it? Why do you live as if this isn't true? 
Well, Peter says, it's because of time. It's been nearly a decade since the Apostle Paul wrote the church in Thessalonica, saying the day of the Lord is coming soon. It's been 20 to 30 years since Jesus was even alive and said that it was near. It's been 500 years since Obadiah said this day is near. And they, like we might, 2,000 years later, say, maybe God wasn't serious. Maybe he didn't actually mean it. Maybe it's not as significant as we once thought it was. And see, the truth is, when we look at the course of our lives and all that is in front of us, it's dangerously easy to forget about the day of the Lord. And this is our first point today, how easy it is to forget judgment. Look at the argument that these scoffers make, these false teachers, in 2 Peter. We're going to read verses 3, 1 through 4. This is the second, or, uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 4, yeah. This is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so it's interesting here that Peter begins to call these false teachers scoffers. Scoffers who come to scoff. That's kind of a unique word for us today, but it can also be translated as mockers. These mockers come to mock God's faithful church. And what do they mock you for? For believing that God will actually physically and historically intervene in this world once more, both to save and to judge. They'll find that to be utterly foolish. And why do they mock? Is it because they have some dangerously insidious view of God? No. It's dangerously casual, isn't it? They look at their lives and they say, nothing's changed in my life. Nothing changed in my parents' life. Nothing changed in the generation beforehand. There's been no cosmic collision, no earth melting away, no sky turning to blood, no judgment seat. Therefore, it might be safe to conclude that God sent Jesus, and that's good. And as long as we acknowledge that, we could live however we want to live. There's no future reward, no future judgment. This is all there is. Due to the unmiraculous, ordinary, ever-moving pace of life, we often draw our own conclusions as to the end to which the world is heading. It's not that these people, it's not that you don't know God's word. It's clear. So what's the only alternative? It's that they're doing what Peter says these false prophets do in 2 Peter 2 verse 10 that we saw last week. They despise God's authority. They choose to selectively obey parts of scripture and to disregard other parts. These same scoffers are people who Peter, if you wonder how, how intricate this doctrine is to the gospel, Peter says these scoffers are defined, what we saw last week, as false teachers spewing destructive heresies. 
They are people who lead people not towards the gospel, but away from the gospel. They are threats to the church, not friends of it. These are people who we would want to distance ourselves from, and yet if we are not careful, if I am not careful, I believe that we can functionally live life under these same assumptions. What do I mean by this when I say functionally live our lives? I mean that if I tell my kids, and I do, two of them are here today, Owen and Adley, they're not even looking at me, I don't know what they're doing, their notes better be really good. Owen and Adley, yeah, hi, I'm the guy on the stage, yeah. I tell that you guys to eat your vegetables because it's good for you. But if I told you to eat your vegetables every single night at dinner and you see me never eating my vegetables, you might come to think that even though dad says it, he doesn't actually believe it. That even though I'm saying it and I'm commanding it and I'm demanding it, that functionally I live as if that weren't true. Because if I actually believed it were true, what would I do? I would eat the vegetables and so would you. You see, in all areas of life, it's not hard to find places where we functionally live contrary to what we believe. And wrapped up in this passage, there are three tests that we can apply to our own lives, which might be God's grace, as uncomfortable as it might be, to show that despite what you say, you might be functionally living with a willing forgetfulness of the day of the Lord, a willing forgetfulness of Christ's return and the subsequent judgment. And the first test that we see here is license to sin. This is the test he immediately prescribes to these scoffers in that they feel freedom to sin because Christ has come. This sounds pretty outlandish, but it's the people not, it's not people who sin. We will all sin. We're progressing towards holiness. These are people who feel okay and empowered to sin because of what Jesus has done. I remember I encountered this for the first time without any nuance when I was in high school. I was at a Christian high school and there was a group of friends that were notorious as the partiers and we got in a conversation one day and he just said, there's grace for this. I can continue to live how I want to live because at the end of the day, Jesus died for me. And so there'll always be grace for my sins. But that's not conversion, that's not salvation, that's slavery, we looked at that last week. That's license. In fact, look at how Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter one, or Romans six, verses one through four. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, why are we saved? Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus saves us to change us And he changes us by saving us. We can't get that order wrong. And we can't deny that truth. Which means if you look at the gospel, the good news that Jesus came to die for sin and yet you think that sin is okay, you are functionally denying salvation. You are denying the danger of the very thing that killed your Savior. And what this shows is that to live with license to sin is to deny that God will judge those who are in sin to continue in sin but to claim Christ is to find yourself in danger of judgment. 
And this is a pretty bold test. I imagine none of us in here, I would hope, would be so bold as to just say, there's grace, I can live how I want. But these next two tests are a little more subtle and something that I wrestle with more in my own life. The next test we see, and both of these are taken out of chapter 3, verse 10, is lust for the world. Lust for the world's desires. I love fireworks, love the sound of them, love the smell of them, I love destroying things with them. But can you really think of a more foolish thing to invest all of your fortunes in than buying tons and tons of fireworks? It's estimated that Americans spend $1 billion a year on fireworks. That's $1 billion lit on fire for two to 10 seconds of glimmering glory. Firewood keeps us warmer, longer. Food keeps us sustained for hours and even days. Even buying a new TV can be returned to again and again. But we flock to fireworks because for just that split second, we might be attracted to their shine and enticed by their momentary heat. But to take and invest all of our wealth in that is to be a complete fool. Because even though it entertains, it doesn't last. It's burned up. Yet if you as a Christian deny the second coming of Jesus, the wonderful promise of an eternity with God, where all of the trappings and pain of sin are finally removed and we get to live in a new heavens, in a new earth, with a God who made us to be satisfied in him, you are spending the whole of your life buying fireworks that fade. Things that will slowly and certainly burn up in a moment. Look at what 2 Peter 3.10 says. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. We laugh. We hashtag at first world problems. But to deny the future joy that is held for us in Jesus Christ we live far more foolishly and far more blindly. For everything we run to, if in discomfort we run to the adventure of the mountains or the comfort of our bedroom or the expenses of our homes, we are running to things which will fade and burn and never satisfy. But to put our hope that we will be satisfied in Jesus through his grace is to set your desire on something which will endure. The last test, sort of license to sin or lust for the world, is a legacy of self. Just like these scoffers, when we look around and we don't see a ruling, reigning, visible king, the kind of king that Jesus is, we begin to functionally live life as we are king. That we have the ability to leave a legacy that actually matters. And then that's chief. We want to craft our lives in such a way where it vindicates our own existence. We want people to see how we live. We want people to see the accomplishments we have in life. And this is dangerous because this can look like raw and rampant hedonism, living for just the self-gratifying pleasures of the world. But it could also look like charity and good works, wanting to leave a good legacy of something. But to live for a legacy of self denies the fact that when all is said and done, we are only vindicated by the legacy of Jesus and our relationship to it. Only he has done what is perfect, right, and true. Only he has served others selflessly his whole life. Only he is righteous. No, not even us. And we must learn to see this. 
Look back again at 2 Peter 3.10. We see what this passage says about the desires of the world. Look at what it says about the worth of your works. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It's not only the items of the world which will one day be exposed, but so will your works. It will not stand this coming judgment. The only works which will stand are the works of Jesus. Are you willing to live your life in that legacy? Or do we find ourselves living for things that won't stand another day? You see, there's a big assumption in all three of these false tests that Peter is graciously revealing in our hearts. And that is this, to affirm faith in Jesus, but to live your life for the desires of the world in others is to assume that because God isn't so close and so near with his promise, that God is no longer working for your good. That God is now uninvolved and unengaged, and if you want what is good, you better start living under your own authority and not God's authority. He doesn't know what's going on. But believers should understand that God is not uninvolved with the world and he is not distant from his promise to judge. And this is Peter's second point. He begins to show how inconsistent it is for believers to deny judgment. He shows how easy it is. It happens daily. It happens consciously and intentionally for false teachers. It happens daily for even sincere Christians. But now we need to see why we can't be duped by this. Read with me verses five through seven. For they, that is the scoffers, Deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged by water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So if this text sounds a little confusing to you, it's because it kind of is. Um, it's, it's hard to read and hard to decipher, but what Peter is doing is he's writing to people who claim to be Christian and yet are living their lives in a way that is blatantly not Christian. And so what he's going to use now is a ruthless, ruthlessly Christian argument to show their inconsistencies. He says you might be living this way, thinking you're following God, but you're intentionally overlooking the other truths that God has given you in his word. Remember in verse four, these scoffers affirm that God created. They say things have been the same since creation. And Peter grabs onto that. He says, if you believe in a creator God, then you already believe in a God who is intentionally involved in his creation. You believe in a God who is sustaining and involved in this world. And this includes God's ability to intercede in judgment. And he uses this kind of parallel. He says, in creation, one of the first things God did is he caused the world to, he caused dry ground to come up out of water. He separated the land from the sea by his word. And then he fasts forward to Noah's day and he says that by that same word, God undid a portion of his creation where he brought life through the water, where in the flood, he judged the world through water. He judged the world with his word according to their sin. At one point in history, we saw so clearly God's nearness 
to his creation. We saw how God was willing to interact with his creation, and it was during the intense days of corruption in Noah, where the wicked were judged, but those who obeyed, Noah and his family, were saved. And so now he makes this parallel. He looks at creation, he looks at the flood, and he says that judgment was with water. But that same word and that same God is waiting for a judgment to come with fire. A judgment like the flood, but entirely different. Not just a physical judgment, but a spiritual one. Not just one judgment for a certain group of people alive in a certain time frame, but a judgment for all who have ever lived. The same word which created, the same word which sent the flood, is the same word that sustains the world until that day of judgment. To believe in God, but to deny his ability to intercede and to judge is not just to have another interpretation on scripture. It is to invent a God of your own choosing. And that is a dangerous place to be in. So what do we do then? I have seen Zero physical miracles in my life. There's been no miraculous fire falling from the sky. I've sinned some mornings and I've, some nights and I've woken up in the morning and I'm still here. How do we live in a time where it seems that our world is spinning out of control with sin and unrighteousness, that someone needs to take control, that someone needs to find desire, that someone needs to find satisfaction? Look at 2 Peter 3 verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. We should not overlook this reality that God's timing is not like our timing, that God has different standards of time. You've probably heard me say this before, but maturity, one of the best definitions I've heard for is maturity is simply having elongated time horizons. Meaning this, when I get up in the morning, I'm generally on my couch drinking coffee when my kids start to wake up. And for each of my three oldest kids, when they come in, there's a different relationship to their needs, time, and their dad's response. When Adley wakes up, all three of my kids ask for the same thing. They want cereal. The breath, cereal please. That's their, their morning process. And so she comes out and she sits on my lap, um, in the event she wakes up first, which is rare, and she says, Dad, can I have some cereal? And I'll say, yes, in a moment. She'll let me finish my devotions, and then she'll ask for cereal again, and I'll get it to her. Owen, when he wakes up, he'll let me do my devotions, and he'll even let me sit there and finish my cup of coffee, and he'll go there, and he'll know that Dad is going to get him cereal, that he's not going to let him starve and die and waste away. Ellie, who is two, When she wakes up, she asks for cereal, and if I say, wait one second, it does not compute. She cannot understand a world wherein I would not give her that cereal immediately, and that because I am not, she is bound to die, dad has forgotten to care for me, and she is of all people most to be pitied. She doesn't understand, she doesn't think, she cannot consider that I am still after her good, and I know exactly what she needs when she needs it. And when we look at our world today, true believers look at this gap between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. And we refuse to think that because of that, God is uninvolved and uncaring. 
And instead we see the good nature of this God. And we say that it's in this period he is intentionally working for our good and actively laboring for that. See, this is our last point today where we see how merciful it is to escape judgment. Look at with me at verses nine through 10. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heaven will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. So Peter has shown here, whether you believe in God or not, this world is on a crash course with this cosmic event called the day of the Lord. There's an event where Christ will return and he will judge humanity and on that day the value of the world's riches and the measure of your works will be shown to be nothing compared to the wages of sin. And those who fall on the wrong side of that equation will be judged. And it's this idea of assessment and judgment that leads some some non-Christians to resent a God who could judge. I can't worship a God who would do that. Maybe heard that before. And then it leads other Christians to talk their way around this subject, try and minimize God's judgment, or to perhaps even be as intentional as these false teachers say that he doesn't actually mean it. We paint this picture oftentimes in thinking on judgment, that God is this insidious, gotcha journalist, where the reason why history is going is because he's waiting for the most sinister, the most heinous moment, and then he's going to turn on all the lights and be like, ha ha, gotcha. And no one likes that kind of person. But God is not a gotcha journalist looking for someone to entrap. In fact, there is someone looking to entrap you in scripture, and it is the devil. It is not God. God is the one speaking to save you. God is the one calling you to himself. When you look at your life and you see the ordinary day-to-day events of your life, Peter wants you to consider two things in this text. He wants you to first see that God is patient. That's what he says. God is being patient toward you. God is not slow to fulfill his promise. He's patient to do it. Meaning that the day-to-day, year-to-year, century-to-century churn of your world doesn't show that God is distant, but instead it shows that God is actively sustaining this world with you in mind. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3a. Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, that is Jesus whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe, there it is, by the word of his power. Christ, by his word, sustains the day-to-day events of the world. Look at Colossians 1, verse 17. Paul says this, And Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold Together, do you understand the reality of when we take Hebrews and Colossians and we bring in God's desire in 2 Peter what we see? 
that the mundane, seemingly casual events of daily existence do not lend itself towards a merely humanistic understanding of history. But instead, what scripture shows is the divine miracle that every second God the Father through his Son is sustaining every proton and every neutron in its place. He is guiding the collision of every atom. Every elemental substance holds its shape in him. The word of his command sustains the rotation of the earth. Every car that cuts you off in traffic, every itch you've ever had on your nose that you cannot itch, every cell of every COVID virus in this world is ordained, sustained, and carefully, patiently purposed by God himself. Why? So that you might not perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, not only is God patient, but God desires repentance. Have you ever been one who asks, God, if you're real, show me a sign? that's you, Peter's calling you to consider your breath. You are alive today. God has kept you alive today that you might repent. And there's something astounding in this text because if all God wanted to do was judge, he only needed to wait until the second page of scripture. By Genesis 3, If all God wanted to do was punish sin, he could have done it fully, wonderfully, entirely, dusted off his hands, and been done. But here we see that the reason why history goes on is not primarily because God desires to judge the sinful, but because God desires to save them. Do you understand the implications of that? The urgency and the immediacy that works into your daily life. Now, don't misunderstand this. When Peter says that God is not willing that any should perish, it means that apart from God's works, all will perish. It also does not mean, on the flip side, that none will perish that everyone will get to heaven because remember what Peter just said about these very same false teachers in chapter 2, verse 12 and 17. He says this, but these men and women, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Just because God's desire is to save does not mean that all will repent. But we see that above all things, God desires salvation even when judgment exists. We also see that for some people, this period of life is simply adding to the sum of their punishment. That day by day, their judgment, their punishment is becoming more and more justly deserved. Look at what Paul says in Romans 2 verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent, that's unrepentant hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. For some ungodly, 
they will continue to add to their sum total of their bill and it will be paid upon them in judgment. And yet Peter's point is despite this astounding certainty that God will judge the ungodly, there is a way of escape. Though all of us have sinned, there is a way for you that does not end in your judgment. There is a response which you can have which is rooted not in arbitrary requests or random chance, but it is rooted in God's patience towards you. And that is the way of repentance. I'm going to talk in a moment about what repentance is, but here I want you to see the nature of repentance. Here we see that repentance is the result of, it does not earn God's patience. Did you notice that? We don't repent. God grants us patience to see how it goes. God is patient that we might repent. Repentance is not a work done by you. Repentance is the result of God's direct will working in your heart. Paul also says this in Romans, writing to the same people who are seeing this pause of God's visible activity as a sign that God has abdicated his involvement in his creation. Look at what he says in Romans 2 verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Why does the world turn? Why do the nations rage? Why is the sky blue? Why are you here today so that you might experience God's kind desire for you? Repent and escape judgment. This is the wonderful good news of the gospel. This is the only place where you could find something as bad as sin and something as good as grace. God in his mercy provides a way. This way is not measured in your own ability to make up for wrong works done out of a broken heart. It is not try harder and hope to tip the scales. This way is the way of repentance. What is repentance? We've heard it. We've memorized it. Might have even sang of it today. But what is it? Do you think you would want to know what that is? If the world had a cure for COVID, do you think we would say, meh? Wouldn't we want to know? Know of its nature. Know of its benefit. Know of its application. Repentance is this turning away from your sin and turning towards Jesus. Repentance is not feeling sorry for yourself. Repentance is not feeling grief over your sin. Repentance is not believing that Jesus exists. Repentance is a directional change in your life. One of my favorite illustrations of this is uh, from a home run in baseball. When that ball is hit, it repents. It changes directions entirely. Now, if you've ever thrown a baseball, you'll realize that most balls don't turn around and fly the other way on their own merit. They're struck by something. When believers turn from their sin and repent, it is a sign that you have been struck by the mallet of God's grace for you in Jesus Christ. 
that God has been patient, that God has been kind, that he has so worked in your heart to open blind eyes to see the wonderful turning power of redemption and to go the other way. And how does this redemption save us in Jesus Christ? Because Christ took the weight of your judgment. Just as these false teachers were destined for destruction, just as the world is on a crash course with destruction by fire, Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, takes your destruction. No one escapes judgment. It's just a matter of where your judgment goes. Does it fall on you? Or does it fall on the Christ who came to save you? The one who is willing to take it from you. Repentance sees the weight of sins and the wonderful relief of Jesus. Repentance refuses to despise the authority of God because it sees that God's authority is always good even when it calls us away from what was once delightful. And those who live that way, pursuing Jesus in a heart of repentance, are those who endure and are saved. So I have three points for us in closing today. First, if you're not a believer in here, I pray that today is the day of your repentance. Just as Peter says, this day comes like a thief. You don't know when it will be. You don't know where it will be. What we do know is that you have today. And that you, by grace, might see the glory of Christ in his substitutionary role and live for him. See that he recreates us by his beauty and believe in the king who loves you. John Bunyan uh, wrote Pilgrim's Progress, was persecuted, was a pastor in England. He once wrote a little book uh, answering questions for people who are coming to Jesus, people who had doubts about Christianity. And he gives this in a question and answer, and this was his question of someone who doubts if the gospel is good news for them. But, says another, I fear I come too late. I doubt I have stayed too long. I'm afraid the door is shut. His answer was this, thou canst never come too late to Jesus Christ if thou dost come. If that is you, come that action of repentance might go against every aspect of your worldview of license, of lust, and of legacy. It might say, I need to do more than that. But you can't do more than Jesus. It is humbling, it is freeing, it is empowering, and it is saving. If that is you in here today, do not leave here as awkward as it might be without talking to me, without talking to the person next to you, without, if you're watching online, contacting us on the church website, showing up to your community group leader's home with a mask on, being all nice and everything, saying, what is this that I must have? And learning more about the beauty of Jesus. Secondly, for the individual Christians in here, Peter's warned us of the dangers of thinking too casually about judgment. He's told us that at the end of all history, our works will be exposed, and that those who have gone continually with unrepentant, unaddressed issues, those are people who have never actually been saved. They've never been redeemed from the curse of sin. So you and me have responsibility to assess our own lives. And realize that repentance calls us to live in a new way, not by our own might, because that's pretty weak, but by the power of grace and the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Repentance starts by taking scripture seriously and realizing that all of this, 
even if their claims that seem so future-oriented that it can never be practical to you or for your good and that you should obey it. Laboring for the glory of God and living a life of holiness is not an option in the Christian life. It is the Christian life. And by doing that, we see more and more God's immense love for us in Jesus. And lastly, for our whole church, we are here today that we might call others to repentance. Let's not forget that Peter wrote this letter to the church, meaning that in this room are confessing believers who still need to repent, confessing believers who are living functionally unrepentant lives, but also in this room are true brothers and sisters who God has put next to you to call you out and to call you back. And those conversations are never enjoyable. They seem, just as my youngest daughter does when I refuse to give her cereal right away, it seems to be rooted in anything but love. But this is what we do, for that is the love which saved you in Jesus. We will have, in our years of ministry as a church, members who fall away. And we go back with the message of mercy. Not mercy undefined, but mercy through the blood-bought repentance that Jesus enabled. You see, it's in seeing the doctrine of judgment we see more clearly the good news of grace that is for us in Jesus Christ. It's in hearing the doctrine of judgment that you hear that there's a way around it and it's free through Jesus. And it's in hearing this doctrine of judgment that Christians are called to endure and reach repentance because of God's kind patience towards you in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you grant us all spirits of repentance. You chastise the Pharisees in Matthew when you say to them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Lord, I pray that that would be us. I pray that the fruit of our lives is not the effort of our own hands, but the sign of a grace that has transformed our lives. I pray that you strike many of us, not with the low-hanging emotions of guilt or of grief or of a desire to perform, but with the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for those who in their own lives have believed the logic of these scoffers, assuming that you are inactive and unconcerned with their lives. And I pray that you strike them with the glory of the compelling joy of living for you, the weight of their sins and the wonder of your work on the cross. We pray all this so that we might be those who do not perish, but who reach the end and call others to join us as well. We pray this in your name.